Dr. Nathan Pinskier is a Melbourne GP and a prominent figure in the country's digital health scene. Um, he's also on the expert committee for eHealth with the RICGP. Dr. Pinskier, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, Felicity. Great to be here. Thanks so much for giving us your time today. Um, so we've heard that the transition to telehealth for GPs has been more than a little bit bumpy. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's happening in your practice, some of the complications that you're seeing? Yeah, well, uh, I would have liked to think that uh, with the background I have in digital health and uh, all the meetings and conferences and workshops and guidelines and committees that uh, I've been involved with over the years, that it would have been a relatively seamless process. In fact, it's anything but. It starts from the fact that uh, metropolitan general practice has not really used telehealth uh, until recently. The item numbers have been available in rural and remote, but uh, in metropolitan Australia, unless people were prepared to pay for a consultation, it wasn't really a viable option. So our practice has had relatively limited to no experience in this space. Fortunately, we do employ our own IT staff, so that makes it a bit easier. And about uh, three weeks ago, when I could foresee that this uh, crisis was uh, becoming more severe, uh, I spoke to my IT team and we ordered uh, cameras and, uh, and uh, webcams and uh, headsets. And we took a stab because we didn't know how many we'd need. And uh, we have um, in our five practices about uh, 50 consulting rooms. So we bought about 20. And we rolled those out over a few days and tested them, and uh, they seemed to work okay. And uh, then as the crisis got closer and the telehealth item numbers started rolling out, we then started having issues around doctors actually understanding and uh, working out how it fits into the workflow, um, how you actually contact the patient, whether it's the patient calling you or you contacting the patient, how you designate the appointment within the appointment system, um, is there enough bandwidth, and uh, issues like that. And how do you just make that seamless transition? And day after day, we've been sort of battling through the protocols and trying to refine them. So it's been a challenge. We've been having uh, daily meetings with the IT team, with our, with our uh, practice managers, with the nurses, emails from the doctors. And like every 10 or 15 minutes, there is a new issue that emerges. Today, for example, we're finding that our clinical software that shall remain nameless and won't send the billing out properly because it's not recognizing some of the telehealth item numbers. So that's a call to the uh, clinical software or practice management uh, company to try and sort out, is that a policy issue or is that an operational issue? And that's just one example in a very, very complex process. Yeah, I can imagine you with all your experience of e-health would probably be, you know, on top of a lot of these things, but I can imagine a small GP clinic with only a few doctors who have never done this before would really be struggling. Yeah, well, at one level, it seems really simple. Just install the camera, um, make sure you've got a headset and a microphone, and the magic should happen. At another end, it's actually quite a complex change in business process. We are all used to having patients in our waiting rooms, and uh, we're generally used to having waiting rooms that are you know, moderately full to very full. We've now flipped this totally round so that what we're saying is we really don't want people in our waiting rooms unless it's clinically indicated and we can't do it by telephone or telehealth. So all of a sudden waiting rooms are empty, staff are wondering what it is that, that they need to do on a daily basis. Uh, they're answering a lot more phone calls, they're having to triage more complex situations. Uh, we're having to triage people through the software at the point they make the appointment online or, or, or by phone. 
We're then having to record that triage. We're having to re-triage them again when they turn up at the front door. So we've had to lock the front doors. Now I know a lot of practices now have locked their front doors and stopped the walk-ins. Uh, we have to ensure that people don't slip through our safety nets because we want to protect our staff. We have a duty of care to our staff as, as, as employers and we want to make sure they're protected and safe. So how do we have a, how do we get enough face masks and gloves and how often is how often do we clean? Is cleaning once once an hour of doorknobs and screens and monitors enough? And that's even before the patient works their way into the consulting room, either by face to face or by telehealth. So lots and lots of interesting scenarios. Yeah, wow. And and how are you going about um, issuing prescriptions? So the movement to telehealth comes with a significant amount of complexity in that the patient's no longer in front of you and uh, you know this is something that I've been working on and with a lot of very smart people for over 15 years how do we transition our current practice processes into a digital world the technology has been around for a long time but the end-to-end workflow and the policy support hasn't been there and we've you know spent so much time trying to solve these problems and yet when the um, crisis emerges and whether it's a bushfire or whether it's now COVID which is a much more protracted crisis we find that the technology and the tools that we need to support uh, virtual consultations isn't readily available it seems to be there it's within your grasp you can feel it but you can't use it easily so something like prescriptions which really should be a no-brainer we spent a decade developing electronic prescriptions or electronic transfer of prescription and that is the generation of a barcode which appears on the prescription when you when you create a prescription uh, using computer software that script at the same time goes up to a prescription exchange service electronically so when the patient takes their paper-based script to the pharmacy the pharmacy can scan the prescription in the same way that you scan a product at the supermarket checkout and that unique barcode then pulls down the prescription from the prescription exchange server and the chemist can dispense the prescription and it eliminates issues of transcription error and identity error. It's a really you know, fantastic process. However, it's not the legal way of issuing a script. So the only legal way of issuing a script is a doctor actually signing the piece of paper. Now, that, how does that work in a world where some doctors who are at risk are working from home or um, are at home because they may have been diagnosed with COVID? They can't easily sign a piece of paper because they're logging into their practice remotely. Uh, the printer is in the practice. The, the, the script prints out at the practice. They can't reach into the room and sign it. So what do we do? Do we say to the doctors, well, guess what? You're going to have to come into the practice and sign the script. So that's not particularly sensible. Do we send the scripts to the doctor and get them to sign them? Well, that's a time lag and delay. We know Australia Post now has about a five-day delivery cycle uh, unless you send it urgently. Do we ask the doctor to write a paper-based prescription and, uh, and post it out? Well, then they carry the problem and the risk of having to go to the post office. So none of those solutions are easy. And then we get calls from pharmacists, and we're getting lots of calls from pharmacists saying, uh, well, we can't dispense a script that hasn't been signed. It's not a legal prescription uh, under state and territory regulations. And, and we understand that, but everybody gets caught in the middle. So in the end, they're saying, well, you just have to get the signature and you're going to have to post it to us. And under current requirements, we can't um, you know, we can't issue the script without the signature, but we'll do it on the basis that it comes within 24 hours. That 24 hours has now been extended by federal government to 15 days. 
it creates a huge burden on everyone, a huge unnecessary impost. I know in my practice, we're now starting to spend hundreds of dollars a week on stamps. And what I said to my staff on Monday, that's enough. We are not posting anything anymore. We're going to sort this out once and for all with government. And I've personally made calls to a number of senior people in government and working with the RACGP to try and get a common sense approach to this, whereby we can get scripts issued through just sending an email with the barcode or an email with a whole script to the pharmacist, the pharmacist dispensing it, and the paper gets dealt with somewhere down the track, maybe stored in the practice, sent to the government, whatever. But we need to move on. We have digital tools and we're not using them. Yeah, well, the reliance on the physical handwritten signature is just baffling to me. I mean, why can't you just put like a digital signature on an email? Well, well again, we can. That's the whole point. We've, we've developed all this technology. We've developed the PKI uh, authentication, the NASH, the NASH process. It's used to send documents, to sign and encrypt documents up to my health record. It can be used for secure messaging. Uh, why we didn't develop to support uh, prescription of these digital signatures that we have uh, is not clear to me. And I know that the uh, that the industry is working on electronic prescribing, and I know the government's keen to ramp that up. Um, but I make the point that in the middle of a crisis, it's going to be a real challenge for practices to update their uh, clinical software. I mean, who wants to update your software in the middle of a crisis and find out the whole system crashes and then have to call the IT people to come out? Then you've break the principles of social distancing and social isolation. So it's probably not a good time to introduce rapidly new technologies that are, that are fundamentally different and then have to go through a change and adoption process. So what we are suggesting is let's use what we have. Let's just make electronic transfer of prescription with the barcode, the legal currency, and, other, and also implement other, um, other solutions as required. But we need to get away from having the paper as the legal script. And, and I understand the only reason we use paper as the legal currency is really for audit and compliance purposes. Surely in the 21st century, we can do a lot better than that. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the other things you were talking about uh, was social distancing um, and how that can be quite challenging to stick to in a GP practice um, and also the cleaning side of things. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those physical difficulties in in operating GP yeah, clinic? This has been a really interesting and emerging problem because none of us have really thought about it in the way that we're thinking about it now. And talking to my friends, and we've done this collectively through numerous teleconferences and phone conversations, we all started to identify a risk uh, that faced our staff and our doctors. And uh, I, I spoke to doctors and, practice, uh, doctors and practice managers and staff in my practices, and we, I had different views. In one of my practices, everybody was wearing a face mask from the moment the COVID crisis became a reality. In one of the other practices, nobody was wearing a face mask. I looked at it and thought, why is that? And, and the answer I got was in one of the practices, the staff said, look, we're older, we're over the age of 50, we're at greater risk. In the other practice, they said, oh, we're all 30, 35, it's not a problem. And that was kind of the message that's been permeated, that younger people don't get the illness, that's less of a problem. I think we're taking a different approach to that now. So when you start to get advice from all the experts and the infection control people, you realise it's not as straightforward as wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And my practice and others started instituting things like tape. I got this idea from Dr. Mikesh Hackerwell and my friend Rob Hosking, Dr. Rob Hosking. They started putting a tape that they bought from Bunnings uh, in front of the reception counter, 1.5 metres away from reception. Put a tape there, started uh, blocking out every second seat, 
uh, then move to locking, uh, putting locking the waiting room or putting a desk in front or behind of the wa- behind the door in the, in the waiting room, introducing a concierge uh, concierge uh, service, screening people, uh, infrared thermometers. All these things have come in very rapidly over the last few weeks. And it seems a little bit extreme, but we're seeing the same thing happening in airports and in hotels and outside government buildings. So I think our highest priority is to protect our staff and to ensure that people don't come into the clinic who may be a potential COVID carrier. Because the moment that happens, that creates all sorts of pandemonium. And in fact, we've had it twice in the last two weeks, and I know other practices have experienced the same problem. It all goes along swimmingly until you get the suspected COVID patient. Then everyone wonders, what do you do? And I know everyone, everyone's read the guidelines and the bulletins and watched the briefings and listened to the Prime Minister and the Premier and the Chief Health Officers. But when it happens in your, inside your practice, it becomes a problem. And then people ring me because they think that I'm the expert and I'd like to think I was, but uh, I'm no more expert than most other people. And we start to work through a process around what happened, what was the issue, uh, what was the contact? Has the person been overseas uh, in the last 14 days? Have they been in contact with someone else? Do they have who may be a carrier or positive? Have they got symptoms? So forth, so on. And in both, in fact, in the three instances we've had in our practices, uh, none of them have turned out to be positive, but they could have just as easily been positive because the environment was sort of right. So you don't know. We then have to wait for two or three days for the test results. You've got to quarantine the room. You've got to send the you've got to send the doctors and staff home, and you lose productivity. You lose capacity within the practice. So it's a challenging time for everybody. Yeah, wow, that sounds incredibly disruptive and so difficult just to figure out what's going on and then you know deal with it in a very sensible, safe way. That's so hard for just from a work safety perspective. It would be difficult. It seems to me like there's a bit of a silver lining. (laughs) Um, It's a silver lining because we're kind of being forced to do a whole lot of things that we haven't done in the past because it's been difficult and, you know, no one's really been game enough to jump in. And particularly around telehealth, it seems like this is a real opportunity for everyone to try it out and just jump right in. Do do you see any sort of positives around some of the things that are, are happening over the, the last oh, few Felicity, weeks? absolutely. You know, I think that old adage, never let a uh, crisis go to waste, is really, really important. So we're learning a whole lot of things about our capabilities, uh, our shortcomings, and we're working to solve those shortcomings. So whether it's around how we use telehealth more efficiently, for example, I, I contacted Graham Grieve, who's the father of fire, and we collectively developed a uh, tool called Clinic Arrivals, which sends SMS alerts to patients and provides some guidance uh, through the appointment uh, process right through to the telehealth consultation. And we think that's got enormous potential going forward. We're learning how to use digital tools more efficiently. We're working with government to re- rapidly change policy. I think we'll come out of this at the end, whenever it is, in three, six, nine months, with a much more smarter and efficient healthcare sector will have learned a lot and we will have done things in six nine months that have taken us 15 years to do hopefully some of those things will become sustainable and permanent features of the landscape secure messaging is one area that i think we still haven't done enough with and i think there's still a great opportunity right now to resolve the lack of compatibility with the various secure messaging products i'd really like to see that happen Uh, and there are other areas i think we can put our hats on and um you know, sharpen our focus. So I think at the end of it, hopefully we'll see telehealth remain as a feature within the Australian landscape. I think uh, patients will get used to it. 
We still need to have face-to-face, -face, obviously, and we don't want to go uh, too much one side or the other, so we don't want to skew the outcomes one way or the other. But it'd be really unfortunate if the, at the end of this if we lose the telehealth capability because I think that uh, Australians are going to get used to it quickly. I think Australian doctors will get used to it. And there is a very clear role uh, for providing a telehealth consultation when a face-to-face -face consultation is not required. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just jumped on and booked my first telehealth appointment with my GP. I mean, I just need a script for something, don't really want to go in. And it was as easy as ordering a pizza. And I just thought, wow, why have I not been able to do this before now? Yeah, so that raises a whole question around how we fund the healthcare system, which is probably a conversation for another time. But in countries where we have um, block funding into general practice, uh, some of those innovative things can happen a lot easier. We rely on strict fee-based service for face-to-face -face consultations. It's a much slower process. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it's really interesting to hear what's happening and, and definitely keep in touch and let us know what, if there's anything rolling that we should be aware of. Thanks, Felicity. Uh, great to join you today.